0: May be your will, Adonai, my God, that a mishap not come about through us. May we not stumble in a matter of law and cause our colleagues to rejoice over us. May we not say regarding something which is to me that it is to and not regarding something which is to that it is to me. And may our colleagues not stumble in a matter of law and we rejoice over them. For Adonai grants wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding of God. Unveil our eyes that we may perceive wonders from your Torah. Amen. Amen. Thank you for for reading, Absolutely. You're getting a little tired, though.
1: Yeah, you don't have to... Later.
0: Well, um, this is going to end up being, the, I planned this to be the last class on Matthew. I was really going to do five weeks, but, um, you guys are marathon runners, and we managed to get through chapters five and six in one week, so. We listened with diligence. We right. did, and we're going to play the rocket team in the background while you're talking. <laughs> I would do the jump, but I would untuck my shirt, and that would be unpleasant, so. Um, we're on <laughs> Matthew chapter seven, and in this particular one, um, the grand finale of sorts for Yeshua's um, famous Sermon on the Mount. He kind of brings things full circle, but he has two um, major themes he's going to focus on. Um, the final theme, the end of the chapter, is very much like um, the negative corollary to what he started with, which is basically um, hypocrisy and how just simply doing what looks good to men isn't really good enough. And But the first half of Matthew 7, when we're going to start... I think, in my opinion, is a very interesting drosh on uh, the most important uh, horizontal commandment in scripture, love thy neighbor as thyself. Because if you um, look at the beginning of Matthew 7, and in Judaism this is quite common to take a verse or two, if you've ever read, I mean, goodness, if you've read the midrash to take a word and they'll spend pages on it, um, it's common to take a very short passage and then expound upon it extensively. This has been done in the visible representation of the church as well. Yes. And no
2: one wants to call a spade a spade or tell somebody that they're in sin. Because we're not supposed to
0: judge. Oh, right, yes. That's yeah, the beginning of Matthew judge not, lest you be judged. But
3: I think that the best way to get. Sorry? Well, it's funny the way you said that because it's exactly what they say. But right. what it actually says is <laughs> don't judge if you don't want to be judged. If you don't have a problem being judged, judge away. That's right. Right, that's right. exactly. And we're
0: going to get into that in a second. Um, but what my theory is, is that basically Yeshua's entire first half of this chapter is, is a drash on Leviticus chapter 19, verses 15 through 18. So we're going to start with that passage. I'm going to go ahead and read that for us out of my Komash And then we're going to delve into Matthew. Because I think it's really cool to see how, like, basically Yeshua's what, 15, 18 verses, something like that, um, parallels these four verses really, really closely. So, um, again, Leviticus 19, uh, verses 15 through 18. You shall not commit a perversion of justice. You shall not favor the poor, and you shall not honor the great. With righteousness shall you judge your fellow. You shall not be a gossip monger among your people. You shall not stand aside while your fellow's blood is shed. I am on an eye. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall reprove your fellow, and do not bear a sin because of him. You shall not take revenge, and you shall not bear a grudge against the members of your people. You shall love your fellow as yourself. I am on an eye. So, what we have here in verses 15 through 18 is two uh, primary themes, one of which is judgment, passing judgment on on people, and the second theme is loving your neighbor and kind of some um, affiliates of that, not hating him in your heart, not speaking gossip against him, not taking revenge, so on. Well, in Matthew chapter 7, basically we get um, some similar things. We start off in the same way this passage starts off in um, Leviticus, starts off with judging and Yeshua spends a good amount of time discussing what righteous judgment looks like because that's exactly what Leviticus has said you shall judge righteously and so the, he, uh, it also mentions another phrase there that says you shall reprove your fellow and do not bear a sin because of him um, and that's a very interesting concept because of course um, Yeshua is going to de- delve into uh, what good judgment is and what it isn't and then he's going to transition from that into love your neighbor as yourself which is very similar to what Leviticus is doing here um, and the, regarding the judgment thing, the sages have an interesting take on judgment. As you pointed out, it's not judge not, period. It's judge only if, basically. This is a better way of translating that. We're, we're judge this way. Judge this way. So um, in, the, in, your, in my chumash here, I've got some commentary um, regarding the passage. that says, uh, do not bear a sin because of him as far as the way that you reprove your fellow and it just notes that um, from Rashi and Sifra, that you will uh, essentially, if you do it the wrong way if you, if you correct someone incorrectly, you're sinning so it's like, instead of saying like, well maybe you, you lost the chance to change their mind or whatever what, he's, what they basically are arguing is that based on this passage in the Torah, you have an obligation to, even when you judge, and that is also a mitzvah, to do it the right way and um, similarly uh, Rabbi Simcha Zissel of Kelm. Ah, hmm. Simcha Zizl. Uh, Yeah. He says that you. the Talmud teaches that one should reprove over and over. Um, and the Chumash goes on to say, often it is unwise to tell someone bluntly how utterly wrong his actions have been. This will only embarrass and antagonize him. It will boomerang. It is wiser to break up the criticism into a hundred small parts, going gradually, a step at a time, to draw him closer to your point of view in a palatable way. The idea being that one of the most important rules, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, is not to embarrass your fellow, even when correcting them, which I think is probably one of the biggest dangers in in public correction, because it's very easy to embarrass someone horribly in that situation. And so, basically, the the sages are saying, and Yeshua is getting at, that when you're going to correct somebody, it needs to be done in the right manner. Um, the sages focus more on kind of your attitude as far as not embarrassing them and maybe trying to make it easier to follow yeshua is going to focus a little bit more on more like kind of who you should correct mm-hmm. and who you maybe shouldn't waste your time with and then also delve into a little bit about how what you should be doing to yourself before you make a correction yes sir well
4: uh, in the first in the first five verses it's it's how you do it as well and the, and the Right and, the, and its purpose is revealed in how you do it if its purpose is to bring about repentance or change, obviously it's going to be done in a way that you, awesome. you want to occur you want to achieve that outcome yeah. whereas if it's just you know you totally blew it
0: you know obviously all
4: you're caring about is
0: saying your opinion it's it's just pure and simple criticism right that's the difference and that's a really good point because as we go into this passage um, you'll notice the difference between, in Matthew chapter 7, he starts off with judge not, do not judge that you will not be judged, is one translation, um, for in the way that you judge you'll be judged. But then later he follows up by saying, um, take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly take the speck out of your brother's eye. And notice the difference in language there. The beginning of it is almost, it's judge, you almost see this big gavel, and you know, someone in a big black robe. And then the first, the, the second, the example of how you're supposed to do it almost sounds more like surgery. You're going to go for this one little thing, being very delicate, very careful to make sure you get that removed. And I think that's the difference, and that's what you're saying, is that um, Yeshua's point, and this is something that Judaism also seems to be arguing as well, is that you don't correct someone for the sake of correcting them. You correct them for the sake of changing their behavior. And they realize that, unfortunately, the way we are wired as human beings, most people are not going to change their behavior if you just come out and say, Hey, you're wrong. If you don't do it in a way with the right attitude and your own personal behavior aligned uh, correctly, people will not listen to you, and then therefore you lose the point of the criticism of the correction.
5: Yes, sir? I'm reading the um, Garden of Education by Rabbi Shlomo Arush right now, and in it um, he suggests that anytime a parent or anyone in any kind— it's, it's geared towards parents, but also anyone in any kind of teaching role— and one of the main points that he makes is that you shouldn't be telling anyone to do anything unless you're exhibiting that same kind of behavior. You can't tell someone to hold your hold their temper if you lose it at the drop of a dime, you right? Know? Or um, so one of the obviously one of the best instructional methods is to exhibit that, and, and if, particularly if you're around your children all the time, you know, don't complain and have mm-hmm. rage and, you know, I mean, all, all these things like that. But it, I think that's uh, a nice parallel here, considering, you know, if it's to change behavior, you have to be not only willing to, to do that yourself, but also to exhibit it right. yourself. Absolutely, and I think that's... And
2: the um, behavior you're looking for should be the behavior that you're already doing. Exactly. Right, exactly. And that's really you should be doing the same thing.
0: And, and that's what Yeshua is getting at when he says... Um, why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? Take out the log in your own eye first. The point being that you can't critique someone until you yourself are not doing what you're critiquing. <laughs> and um, along those lines, it's interesting that you mentioned that because in the Midrash Rabbah, uh, this recent couple portions ago, for Shoftim, you mentioned this in the Torah discussion here, that the, the judges who were the ones responsible for meeting out the punishment, these were not the guys, oh, the judges, I'm sorry, the officers. These were not the guys who were... For were deciding if what they did was wrong, they were the ones who said, so-and-so has done X, you gotta beat them 48 times. So they go beat them four. They were not allowed to punish someone for something that they were doing. Hmm. In other words, even the person who's meeting out the justice who has no opinion on the matter, they're not even, you know, they don't have to say anything, but even their integrity is supposed to be so high that they're not punishing someone for doing the same thing that they themselves are doing. So if you think about it in that context, um, in that context of Judaism, it, it goes right back to what you're saying: is that like if you want to teach somebody, or especially if you want to correct somebody, you're shooting yourself in the foot if you are doing the very thing you're trying to change in them. Yeah. Along those lines, interestingly enough, in that beginning of that passage in chapter seven, Yeshua drops the um, penultimate uh, concept of justice in Judaism when he says, "In the way that you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure." really measured to you. Judaism is famous for measure for measure. What you do is done back to you. Throughout the Torah, you have example after example after example of they did this and this happened to them. They did this and this happened to them. And including even the like the patriarchs and like high ranking like holy people, in fact they were usually held to a higher standard. You do a small thing and you get like a big repercussion but it would parallel. That was always the idea. And it's interesting that that gets brought up because it also includes words of judgment. In uh, in the Midrash Rabbah, in Parashat Korach, um, they have some commentary about Moshe, and Moshe, of course, is he's challenging um, Korach and his followers, and he, he kind of he's debating or discussing with them a little bit, and then finally he just says, "You take too much upon yourself," um, which is Rab Lakem. And uh, what's amazing about that phrase, that Hebrew word, the phrase that he uses, is that it's used back to him again in Deuteronomy chapter 3. In Deuteronomy chapter 3, Moshe comes before Hashem and again asks to be let into the Holy Land, uh, to the Land of Israel, and God says, enough for you. It's the same Hebrew phrase, Rab Lachem, it's enough. Uh, and you can't ask for this anymore, you're not going in. And so the, the, the Midrash says, The Holy One, blessed be He, said to Moshe, You have smitten them with a rod. You shall yourself be smitten with, what, with that which you have used for smiting others. You said, Rav Lakem," and in the near future you shall hear, Rav Lach, the singular, let it suffice for thee. So the point is, I, mean, I think it's funny that they use a rod again there, or Yeshua uses the same language talking about a rod, and it kind of goes back again to the, to the officer who's casting judgment. That this, when you you when you say to someone something it comes back on you i mean i had i mean it's so funny the other it's just a funny example um i was like something small even i was talking to my wife about something simple it's not like a bad thing it's like you know kind of like can you believe so and so does this and then without even like it wasn't the same reasons i ended up doing the exact same thing by accident and it was almost like Okay. There it is. Gotta be careful about that. You Even commenting, like critiquing someone behind their back, not to their a face. face. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's like you get that reminder that it comes back to you.
2: Rav lechem. Is that like evil
0: bread? No, not raw. Rav, like too much.
5: Okay. A great amount. Rav. Too much to you.
0: Yeah, rav like rabbi. The same. Rav Got it, okay. okay. And lechem is, uh, is to you. To you. Um, like if you say in he uh, the the lamed and then the, the, the ending for the different person uh, is two, so the lamed by itself is the is the uh, oh, yeah. preposition yeah. preposition two. Got it. So, um, I thought it was cute. Mm-hmm. It, is, it, is, it is kind of funny. It sounds great bread. Um, <laughs> it's great bread, right? Uh, oh, ra is evil. Ra is great. Right. Yeah, okay, good. Okay, okay. Right. So the next thing is Yeshua drops. Um, he drops his own strong words. So he's talked about how you need to have your your attitude about yourself correct before you correct others right then he follows up by saying basically who you should correct and he says do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine a very famous passage where they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces now one interpretation i saw on looking online was that the dogs and the swine is a reference to pagans to gentiles it's so like you hear the romans the roman pigs you know dogs whatever but actually, these, these two terms, and the way they're used, which is even cooler, are very, um, are, are basically, he's basically paraphrasing two different passages in the Tanakh. Um, really? Proverbs? Proverbs is one of them, so we're going we're to start with Exodus. So the first one that I want someone to look up um, is Exodus chapter 22, verse 31.
2: Exodus chapter...
0: 22, verse
5: 31. That's the last verse?
0: You got
4: it? Got it. You shall be holy men to me, therefore you shall not eat any flesh torn to pieces in the field, you shall throw it to the dogs.
0: Throw it to the dogs. So see how it's almost like an inverse? In In Yeshua's words, he says, don't give what's holy to the dogs. In the Torah, it says, you're holy, so you can't eat this, but you can give it to the dogs. So it's almost kind of like this uh, little yin yang kind of flip yeah. on it um, that Yeshua does. Almost it's almost like a dark phrase. With the pig
5: phrase. Well, the pig phrase is very similar. Yeah, um, but it's also the idea that, like, um, that, a, that a pig can't even understand the value of the pearl. Right. Like, it, so if you, yeah. so it's so it's wasted. Right. So it's. To, to try and explain it to, or to even give it to someone who's not even who doesn't not even have the, the capacity to appreciate, let alone to absorb it. Right, and if you, if someone looks up Proverbs eleven twenty two, that's the passage
3: where. I bet Brock's got that one. Yeah, okay. go ahead. <laughs> like a gold ring in the snout of a pig is a beautiful woman who lacks good sense. So again, this sort of
0: parallel. Again, he's talking about jewelry and pigs. And the point of both of these, of, of that particular passage, is to argue that the um, it's essentially like you're saying that the the swine it's like a it's it's almost tragic. It's like here's a great woman and she doesn't have discernment, she doesn't have wisdom, she doesn't have um, uh, understanding. And so in, in, in Yeshua is taking this approach here by saying, don't give something valuable to someone, as you're saying, who will not be able to appreciate it. And Proverbs twenty six eleven we don't have to look that one up, but it also mentions dogs again the parallel link to um, a fool so you get that idea that pigs and dogs are basically terms for wicked people is essentially what it boils down to and um, we're going to delve in a little bit deeper in a second as to um how proverbs actually uh along the same lines as yeshua tells you don't talk to these people
1: you're up. yeah and i think yeshua's last part even references like how it's not just like, you're wasting something, but it's, like, also dangerous. Right. You know, because fools, they... I think he's he's pointing out, like, you, you can't really underestimate somebody that's a little bit out of their mind mm-hmm. or that is wicked and has very, very low morals because... Especially they, these days. They'll kill you. They'll kill you, exactly. And I think I think that this is quite the, the warning from that perspective, too, because Proverbs does have a couple quotes that tend more towards the dangerous side as well, like, not really... Engaging with the fool, the the one about like you know sending a fool out to do your bidding is like throwing arrows of death and all that. <laughs> it's, it's it's really a dangerous thing as well. Indeed, yes, sir. Well, I was just wondering about the
4: connection between "Don't give what is holy to dogs, throw your pearls before swine." To the judge, not judge, so that you will not be judged. It it almost seems like it's all part of the same thing. Right. So, so instead of staying in the street corner and going, you're sinning, you're sinning, you're casting
0: pearls before swan. Right, and I think, and um, I, I agree. And I think actually, to that effect, I think what she is getting at with this point is a couple of, uh, ideas from Proverbs. So someone read chapter 9, verses 7 through 8, and someone else can get Proverbs chapter 15, verse 12. And while they're looking those up, uh, Greg Upham says
2: uh, to see Exodus 25, 9, uh, in the Mishnah, Soda 117, Bavli Rosh Hashanah 16b, and Bavli Sanhedrin 90a, all of them all say what Yeshua says, and in some cases, verbatim. <laughs> what was the Bavli? was the It was uh, Bavli, Sanhedrin 90a. Which, as I think we mentioned last week, implies that they got it from him.
0: Right.
1: Yeah,
2: he was the. Uh, rather than was, the other
1: way around.
0: What was
2: the Soto one? Uh, Soda 117.
0: He is the uh, chronologically predecessor, at least to the, the written title. Exactly, yeah. Sorry, what was it? Rosh Hashanah? 16b and Proverbs. Sanhedrin 90. nine, seven nine
2: eight? Eight. 98. 9, I've got the 15. I've got that one. Okay.
0: Sanhedrin 98. 98. 90 Alright, yeah. if you want to read
3: chapter 9 of Proverbs 7 through 8, and then I'll get John over here. <laughs> He who corrects a scoffer only gets insulted. Improving a wicked man becomes his blemish. If you reprove a scoffer, he will hate you. If you approve a wise man, he will love you. So
0: you see that, like, you should remember the first half of the passage, and based off of the commentary from Leviticus chapter 19, seems to be the idea that the correction needs to be done in means that will actually achieve attain results. Well, Proverbs is making it very clear here um, that if you correct a scoffer, uh, you rebuke a, few, a fool, You will not achieve results. In fact, instead, they'll just get mad at you. Go ahead and read the 15,
5: verse 12. What was that
3: one? 9, 7
5: through 8. A scoffer does not like being reproved. He will not go to the wise. So the... What was
0: that? 15, verse 12. So again, the idea being that um, when Yeshua says, don't cast your girls before swine, he seems to actually be encouraging people not to correct someone who's not going to take it well and that's not to say that maybe that there aren't unique exceptions to this rule obviously we see throughout the prophets jeremiah i mean isaiah sent to people who won't listen to him but those seem to be somewhat unique i mean ironically enough it's i think it's ironic very ironic that modern christian evangelism draws most of their examples from the prophets because if you go to the new testament the model of Preaching at people who don't want to hear you is non-existent. Yeshua sends out his disciples and says, and if they won't receive you, dust the dust off your feet and keep going. Keep moving up. Paul repeatedly, with with maybe a couple exceptions, but very rarely does he ever continue a a sermon when people start really arguing with him. He'll talk to people who are hostile, but usually as soon as they start cutting him off and they're done with listening to him, he moves on. His most famous sermon on Mars Hill, he actually doesn't get to finish. He gets to the end, he mentions resurrection from the dead, they start making fun of him, and he quits. So the point being is that um, Paul, along with the disciples of Yeshua, seemed to understand this concept, that if you're preaching at somebody, or teaching somebody, or correcting somebody especially, who is, especially the scoffer, was the one that was used the most, that's really, it does no one any good, and in fact, especially if you're in a group setting, it can be very dangerous, because the scoffer is the type of person who just makes fun of stuff, just throws it back in your face, Spits on it, basically. Lovely people to be with. Really, and, um, and 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 it's, it's it's malignant. It's scoffer. The, the scoffer is listed um, in Psalm chapter one as one of like the the really bad dudes. Right. You know, you don't want to be in that category. Um, so it's a type of person Let who does in their company. Right, <laughs> right, <laughs> exactly.
3: Yes, sir. Um, well. Proverbs is just I think most of Proverbs is about how not to associate with fools. <laughs> but um, and don't be a sluggard. Yeah, don't lazy bones. <laughs> anyway, but um, going back to something I think Rick said about in the previous section about how you have to have the right attitude when you go to correct somebody or when you go to judge somebody. It's in the inverse of that, sometimes, you know, we shouldn't take this as as license to not try to correct somebody with the correct attitude. Right. Because, for example, uh, um, Jonah did not want to go and correct the Ninevehites because he thought they were wicked. <laughs> hopeless case. A hopeless case. But, but, you know, God wanted to do it, and he didn't, and they, you know what? They listened to him. So, you know, I, I definitely agree with what you're saying, but we shouldn't take this as license to be, just make a unilateral, like, oh, right. we don't need it. Absolutely. Well, I mean, well, the classic example is parents their children. If you're a parent...
0: And you're about to be, at least literally in the flesh yeah. I mean, it's there now, but you can't really correct them too much at this point but, hey,
3: stop giving your mother trouble Yeah,
0: um, stop kicking your mother um, <laughs> the point is that uh, as a parent you're obligated to correct your children God actually orders you to do so True. and similarly, Leviticus chapter 19 does not say you can correct your brother if you feel like it and circumstances are really good and you think you can make a good you know. it's like, no, you shall do it, but you have to do it the right way so it's not you're right it's not an excuse to never ever do it as again we're going back to matthew 7 verse 1 judge not is not the period point it's judge not let you do not be judged in other words if you are able if god were to look at your life and be able and see that you could be judged at this point and you'd be found sufficient right then you have the merit to also correct someone else and, it, and in many cases you're obligated to as long as you do it with the right attitude and in the right timing.
2: I see verse 6 in in another I agree with what you said 100% uh, but I also see I don't want to say an obligation but a recognition that we ought to know who the dogs are (laughs) and the pigs and I, I, I get the obligation and we have that obligation but at the same time, we should have a recognition that it's a waste of time. You can't right. do verse 6 about the dogs and the pigs unless you can discern which ones are the dogs, which ones are the pigs, Agreed. And, and therefore react appropriately.
0: And we're going to get into that a little bit towards the end of this chapter. He talks a lot about how you recognize those types of people. But then at the same time, I think a lot of it, I, I feel like to me, I, I, I think you're right, um, sometimes that recognition is, is uh, in the moment. Um, and I think that's what Paul ran into a lot of times. Mm-hmm. He would be teaching somebody, and they start throwing it back in his face, and he would go, ah, light bulb moment. Now I know. Now I know who I, I you are. I but now I know. Because and I think that that's really the case sometimes for us, too. As we talked about, um, back in Matthew chapter 5, about let your light so shine, if you live a godly life, especially if you live a Torah observant life, which has weird strings hanging off your pants, and you've got odd holidays, and you don't do things on Saturdays, and the whole rest of the world is, and you can't eat certain things— People are going to ask you questions, the, dogs and the pigs. right? People are going <laughs> to, right? We don't Especially eat those. Um, <laughs> you, you get, you're going to get opportunity to share, and when you've earned that right to share, that also opens the door to opportunities for correction. And so I think that, like, um, I mean, as, as I'm sure all of you have found, those there are times when you have that relationship with somebody, or you have that 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 um, circumstance situation where it's totally appropriate to tell someone you really shouldn't do that but at the same time um thinking about like you're gonna you don't need to go looking for opportunities is basically the point i'm trying to get at um again not to say that there aren't examples where god sent people to go preach to the streets but there are far and few between from what i can tell in scripture most of the time it's very organic or you're going to people who are already asking questions Paul's going to the temple and to the synagogue over and over and over again. He's going to the marketplace where Greeks discussed uh, philosophy. He's not standing on like, he's not wandering into the pagan temple and preaching to them. He's going to where people are asking, he's going to the prayer watering hole, you know? He's going to the places where people are already looking and asking those questions. And I think that's the same thing here. So I really feel like to your point, um, I would almost say to the opposite direction. If you're not sure where somebody stands,
2: Maybe you want to hold your tongue. Sure, and if you give it a moment, they'll put their foot in. <laughs> Probably. Um, we'll, no, uh, I'm, I'm, you go, go ahead. ahead. I saw you. No one. No, well, on. I, it's Greg up. So you go ahead. He'll come after you.
1: Well, I, just to the point of making sure that before you correct someone, that you kind of got a handle on that. I think that's such a great system that sort of perpetuates the betterment of everybody. Because then it, it's almost mm. less about the correction and more about inspiration. Like Mm. you know, it's always the classic case of like, are you gonna get stock advice from the guy that's never used the stock market before? (laughs) If you you have to struggle with pride, if you struggle with like any of the things, you're gonna want to go to the person that's got that mastered, and that's how it's supposed to work, because then Mm. you get inspired to see that it is possible, Mm -hmm. that this particular trait is not something that is impossible to overcome, because this person has a good handle on it. Mm. So I just like how that even just works in the positive sense, not just in the negative of, like, don't correct them, but also, like, yeah, but also you're gaining wisdom and insight from people that have certain things
0: mastered. Absolutely, and Proverbs um, argues that angle as well in saying that, like, basically find those people. A wise man appreciates correction. He almost enjoys rebuke because it's like, oh, good opportunity, I can get better now.
2: Yeah. yeah. Uh, Greg was saying that uh, this particular passage speaks of pearls. And we didn't have pearls prior to that. We're talking uh, about the yeah. rebuke and all that, but the pearl side, and he says that the pearls equal the adages, the teachings, and the interpretations of the rabbis. Okay. And he's got more references than I can I can even go through. Uh Babli Kiddushin thirty nine B, Kulin one forty two A, Shir Hashirim, Rabbah one thirty seven, and Exodus Rabbah forty two eight. Obviously he's He's looked these up prior to this, otherwise he is amazingly fast. But uh, you know, he points out that the Master is our chief Rabbi, and has these adages and teachings. And we need to be careful. He says this is why Judaism is reluctant to teach Torah mm-hmm. to idolaters. Ah, that's a good point. That's another
0: interesting, mm-hmm. interesting
4: point. It is, is possessives, so, but it could be his pearls. they uh, say your pearls. Don't throw your pearls mm-hmm. before If we're his disciples, then that would be, mm-hmm. be ours.
0: But it goes back to the idea of like the stringing pearls concept, you're trying the connections in the Torah you're um, commentating on the Torah so to transition here, because Yeshua um, makes almost like a bit of a jarring transition, but it fits into the context, again going back to Leviticus 19 Leviticus 19 talks about judgment and sort of weaves that into the idea of loving your neighbor, so what Yeshua does this is a classic thing for Yeshua in the Sermon on the Mount whenever he wants to make a point and this is funny because it says love your neighbor as yourself in Leviticus 19 but Yeshua likes to kind of Not so much up the ante, but sort of reinterpret it just a little bit. And he also does something that the Torah does a lot of. Repeatedly, you'll see, I am Hashem your God, I have done this, I have done this, so you should do this. So what Yeshua does is he likes to use that, if God does X, then you should also do this. So what he does here is he goes into, um, before he jumps into the golden rule, he ends up kind of uh, tying in the idea of whatever God does, you should be following by going into the issue of asking and receiving uh, in prayer and then tying it into the way that parents treat their children. Um, this particular passage, uh, I have to tell you, when I first started studying for this, I was like, man, what am I going to ask and you will receive? I mean, what, is that even in you know, Judaism? It's like, oh my goodness, it's like we're talking about, like it sounds like, you know, name it and claim it. Here we go. I'm just going to pray that
5: and it's going to happen for you. Psalm 145. And, uh, um, sorry? I was Oh, right. Yeah. Open, the hand. Open his, in hand. his hands and satisfy the desires of your heart. Right. Every living thing. So
0: you, you get the idea, but then the question is, well, how does that work? And actually it's interesting because Judaism, out of every play, religion and ethnic group really on the planet, who could probably most say, yeah, God doesn't answer all your prayers, it would be them. They've had a really hard time of it, and they've been praying for the same things for a couple thousand years now that haven't happened. But they don't see it as... God not answering, they see, A, that God only answers in what's best for them, so it may not be that what they're asking for is a good thing. But B, more importantly, and this is an interesting concept that ties in very closely with Yeshua, they see that the prayer is not a one-off. In other words, it's almost like, to, to better interpret this concept, it's almost more like you, um, you have to fill up your gas tank of prayer before the car will run. And that's kind of the idea here. It's like if you if you pray one time, that's irrelevant. If you you have to pray maybe two times, ten times, two hundred times, and then once you finally have gotten to a place where you're ready to receive this, then God will give it to you. Um, Parallel
5: in the Kabbalistic term, uh, concept of vessels. Right. So if, you don't, if you don't have a vessel prepared for to receive the blessing, it'll just shatter and it'll go to waste.
0: Right. And then uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs in his Authorized Daily Prayer Book ties into that talks about the idea that you have to become a receptacle for the thing that you're asking for so if you're not capable of receiving it as you're saying then it will um, it's basically like imagine if you're a 40 watt light bulb and God wants to plug you into a spotlight you know you need to up your wattage before you're going to be able to handle that kind of power so um, if if you're asking something from God and he's not giving it to you yet and it's a good thing then one interpretation from Judaism is that you simply haven't asked enough yet because as you ask for it, it's changing who you are. It's in the process of asking for it. It's making you ready to receive that. Mm-hmm. And um, one example, I thought <laughs> this was really interesting. Um, uh, I got this from the Breslev.co.al. Uh, they mention Yalkut Shimone 31. Moshe asks God to enter the land 515 times. Uh, and then the last time he asks, God that's when God says, No more. You shall not ask me anymore. And one interpretation from the Yaku Shimoni is the reason why God had to command him not to pray anymore was that if he'd asked one more time. He would have got gotten <laughs> Um and I thought that was really interesting. Uh Reb Natan, again, same website, they have a quote from Reb Natan who said dead. He didn't. But he should have. have. He shouldn't have. Uh, <laughs> Rabbi Natan said, "Whenever I see deficiency, either there was no prayer or insufficient prayer." Mm-hmm. So it's not. I think the unfortunate thing in in a lot of times when you when you see the name it and claim it uh, concept, it's it, 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 uh, it kind of twists our thinking. It's almost more like Santa Claus. It's like you write out that letter, you send it off, and you're going to get whatever you ask for. And it's like prayer doesn't work that way. Prayer is um, in uh, Rabbi David uh, Aaron in his. Book the uh, Living a Joyous Life. He argues that prayer is more about changing you. In other words, you're not changing God. God is God. I it's about move. what? And <laughs> And he's not moving. But you, on the other hand, you need to be refined and altered by the things, even just by asking for something. It's a process of of shaping you to receive or to shape you into something that you need to be. Um, and to that extent, they uh, other. Uh, Halakha.com quoted from Talmud Barakot 32b um, and I'll provide you with a list of all this stuff later um, that Moshe actually was able to see the land of Israel only because he prayed for it, that it's more efficacious than his good deeds. Moshe is super righteous, but he didn't get to see the land of Israel because he was holy, he got to see the land of Israel because he kept asking Mm-hmm. which dovetails so very well with Yeshua's um, discussions about prayer. He says, asking and you'll receive. He doesn't necessarily say, asking and you'll receive exactly what you asked for when you asked for it. He says, ask and you'll get something back, which is exactly what Judaism is saying. Right. If you ask, if you pray, God's going to do something. It may not be exactly what you wanted, but he's going to move on your behalf, because that's the
3: way that God has set it up. Yes, sir? I I, I it was funny the first i read it this time and and i noticed exactly what you were talking about rather it's not just at once it's no you actually have to keep asking or you have to keep seeking you have to keep you know knocking on the door because and it's funny you know those of us who grew up in the physical representation of the church um it, it's kind of like this it is kind of like you said it's like a it's like, oh, you don't. You just have to ask and it'll be given to you. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to do, put any time for it. You don't have to do anything for it. But that's so out of place in what our everyday life is. Right. We, you know, our bosses don't give us money for doing one thing one time, you know. <laughs> we don't, we, you can't, you know, raise children by, like, doing, telling them how to do something once. You can't, like, you know, right. you can't do anything by doing it just once. Well, some things, but most things you can't do by just right. doing once. Anything worth having is, you have to have done it Done something to get it, something hard to get it. Right, exactly. And um, I like, oh, go ahead. I
5: was just to say I like the concept of preparing for rain. If, if you, if, if your livelihood depends on this crop, and you haven't even gone out to sow the seeds, let alone <laughs> till the soil, but, I mean that that's work that's required to do it. Yeah, Hashem's the one that sends the rain, but what's going to happen to the ground if you haven't done anything? You're not going to grow what's a single tomorrow? thing. Hmm. In yeah, fact, you might find instead that God will not send
0: the rain because you aren't ready for it. Exactly. Why waste it? Um, and it, long. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say to your point, the widow. I mean, we got the other one. We're right. We're going to here. jump into Luke in a second,
4: banging on the door to go into way. that context. Yes, sir. James almost answers the question that people incorrectly ask after they hear Yeshua's words. He says, "You, you, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. Right. That you may
0: spend about your pleasures." Mm-hmm. Right, and actually, in Psalm eighty four eleven, and we don't have to look this up because I'm sure you probably recognize the quote. But it says that um, God will withhold no good thing from from those who walk uprightly. In other words, you're a righteous person, then you get what you ask for. But notice it says no good thing, and I think that's the thing. Is she was a little parable, Rashi does. He says that if you ask, if your child asks you for bread, you won't give him a stone. So then he follows up at the end of that little of that little discussion. He says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask him? Again, not give you whatever you ask for, but rather give you something good. So if you're asking something bad, then you will not receive it. But if you're asking for something good, it takes time sometimes. And sometimes the process of being told no is part of the process of changing you and making you better. I mean, I I think we all have asked for something that's good and not received it. But God is also using that as well to, to change us. But then again, going back to the prayer thing, even if God never answers your prayer, you keep praying. You keep doing mm-hmm. that because that's, that's your role, so to speak. And in that
1: process, you're changing yourself. I've okay, got you and then you. No, you, you covered it. Okay, go ahead. Well, it just that reminds me of like, you know, spend this on whatever your heart desires. And that's <laughs> open ended too, but the whole idea of you're bringing an offering, if you're spending money on things that are holy, it's presupposing the fact that you're desiring things that are good, that are in line with Hashem. So, right. Well, it's, it's the same like saying, here.
0: Everything's okay. <laughs> exactly.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, Rabbi Bernie Fox, an uh, article that was on um, the ou.org right. he notes that uh, when you, Abraham is kind of classic for arguing with God. And he's sort of like, why does he argue with God? But he actually says, Well, actually that seems to make some sense, because Moses does it, Abraham does it, it seems to work. Um, but the point was in both those cases, is the goal was a revelation of Hashem. That when Abraham's arguing to save Sodom, his argument is not, you know, it'd be really nice of you to, to not blow them all away. It's more Would the you judge will look of all the earth not you justly. It's Come like on. you'll look bad if you just do this. And so the point of Abraham's argument, Moses' argument, you promised, you said this. If you wipe them all out, the nations will say this. The point over and over again is the the reason for this is you.
5: You are the reason for this. It's appealing to his attributes, to God himself's attributes and promises. But that also, I think, speaks to our motivation for it, too. It's like if your motivation is the
0: glory of God, then God will do that. Um, now, if your motivation is to, as you're reading from James, to make yourself more comfortable or wealthy or whatever, eh, it's a hit and miss on that one. Maybe not. Okay. Uh,
2: Greg writes that uh, with regard to asking and seeking, uh, Megillah 12b says, uh, Rav Yitzhak said, If a man tells you I have sought hard in Torah but have not found, don't believe him.
5: <laughs> but if he
2: says I have sought hard and have found, we may believe
3: him. May. Um, along those lines it is that
2: God will give to those who seek and ask right Isaiah 55 says seek the Lord while he may
0: be found while he may be found and Deuteronomy says you will seek and you will find if someone could read Luke 11 verses 5 through 13 this is a parallel passage to the Sermon on the Mount and Yeshua uses very similar language okay. and he has an interesting conclusion sorry who has it? 5 through 17 through,
4: through 13 all the words okay yeah then he said to them
0: Suppose one of you
4: has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has come to me from a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Do not bother me, the door has already been shut, and my children are in bed, and I are in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he even though he will not get up and give him anything because he is a friend, his friend, yet, because of his persistence, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, and it will be given. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you shall find. Uh, you will find. Knock and it will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be open. Now suppose one of you, one of you fathers, is asked by his son for a fish. He will not give him a snake instead of a fish, will he? Or if he asks for an egg, he will not give him a scorpion, will he? And if you being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give?
0: The Holy Spirit to those who ask him. And that's the conclusion. I think it's very interesting. He ends with, in that version, the Holy Spirit. So in Matthew uh, 7, he says what is good, and that one's the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is not understood at all by Christianity. um, and, And Judaism's take on it is that Holy Spirit is the lowest level of prophecy. Now, it is understood somewhat by Christianity in the idea that it is God interacting, interfacing with you personally. Um, Judaism kind of ups it a little level. And more importantly, Judaism recognizes that holy, the Holy Spirit is not a given. Because you happen to be a good dude, you get the Holy Spirit. If you've read Meslech Yesharim, like, Holy Spirit level is, like, way up there. you got to be super holy to qualify for a direct revelation from God. Now, the apostolic writings seem to indicate that God has um, miraculously and incredibly graciously opened the door, maybe a little wider for all of us for some odd reason but the point that I'm trying to get at is when Yeshua says ask for the Holy Spirit it isn't like this I would like to have the Holy Spirit you know this kind of I don't know I don't even know what to put it in terms of it's your, the best way to say is I want a direct connection revelation from God I want to have intimacy with Hashem you ask for that and you seek it you will find it
2: I don't think he's opening up the gates in any way differently than he has in the past to your point from the book. He is offering it. Are you ready for it? Right. And if not, you know we're
0: back to keep praying and keep praying and keep changing. Um, so he then going back to what I was saying earlier. Yeshua likes to use this as you as your as God does you do. So in verse eleven of Matthew seven, he says talks about you being evil not give good gifts to your children. How much more will your father have a good gifts to them. And so he immediately then transitions from that. And this is the end of that Leviticus 19 commentary. And everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you, for this is the law and the prophets. This wow, verbatim. is exactly what Hillel says. The guy, the, the, I, think he's, I think he's a pagan, isn't he, looking for conversion. Mm-hmm. He comes to Hillel, he comes to Shammai and says, "How do, summarize the whole Torah while standing on one foot. Hits him with the builder's cube. And he hits him, <laughs> because it's like, that no, can't be done. So then he comes to Hillel, and Hillel uh, says, love your neighbor as yourself. Oh, actually, he specifically says, do not do unto others what you would not have them do unto you. Yeshua just you know, flips it around, I'll be honest with you, I like the positive way better than the negative anyway. And he says, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. And he says, summarizes, this is the law and the prophets. So he takes almost verbatim what Hillel says, and the concept Hillel is trying to portray, and repeats it himself um it's which is really intriguing because of course um this um, reminds me again back earlier when he does the the dogs and the holiness and the pearls and the and the the pigs how he kind of flipped it almost like a turn of phrase on this concept in scripture he's sort of in the same thing here with Hillel's comments Hillel would would have just recently passed away so his this would almost be like a you know a little little toss back remember that guy it's like oh yeah I remember that phrase ooh do unto others, you have them do unto you. That's cool. I hadn't thought of it that way. You know, kind of playing a riff off of it, so to speak. If I'm not mistaken, he died in the year that Yeshua was born. No, a little was a later. I think he's a little bit after that, but it all depends on when you put Yeshua too. There's also
5: a, a uh Josh that I read in um, the Tehillim Treasury that our scroll puts out in regards to Psalm one. Um, in it, they take the among the first verses about do not. I mean, uh, blessed is the man who walketh not and sitteth not, etc. It doesn't say you're cursed if you do this or um, you're you're cursed if you don't do this and things like that. And he goes on to explain that it's actually really important. King David is giving us a clue, some insights into how. We should phrase um, and speak in the positive, mm-hmm. and um, and especially when um, talking about behavior. In this mm-hmm. case, mm-hmm. rebuking and, mm-hmm. and um, teaching. So um, I think that's a really neat parallel from Psalm one. Yeah, I think that's a good point. Yeah, just just literally down to the the word order and the and the positive versus negative, you know, way that it's phrased is an insight into the way that we should uh, make our, our use our verbiage as well
0: right and I think the commentary I've, I've heard too from the sages regarding issue, uh, God's comments about the animals you can eat and don't eat that oftentimes God will list um, like a positive trait like the ones that mammals you know you got this but it doesn't have this it doesn't chew its cud it does chew its cud but it doesn't he lists the positive first before he goes into the negative mm. yes sir
2: uh, Greg points out that uh, Matthew seven eleven is a classic Call the coma
0: argument. Right. If you light, God heavy. There we go. Um, Yeshua then tra- uh, transitions here. He's kind of been de- playing around the, the, the fringe of this a little bit, but he kind of really is going to basically take a, a different path here on going back to we talked about the beginning. So the, the book ends to Matthew. Chapter 5, again, was if you think you can just look good if not enough, and then the end of 7 is going to take that negative approach to say, you know, if you're you're finding yourself in the wrong camp here, you're in big trouble, and here's what that looks like. Mm -hmm. Um, So he says in verse 13 and 14, he talks about enter the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And of course, um, first off, there is no tiny little miniature gate that camels had to crawl on their knees through in in Jerusalem that doesn't exist. Um, But more importantly, uh, this idea of of going with the, the, the few find it, that almost sounds like a problem, right? I mean, Judaism's famous for focusing on the majority. So why is Yeshua like narrowing the scope here? You'd almost think like all Israel will be saved, right? So it's like, you know, we're all good. And, but Yeshua is actually taking a tact that sounds very much like Isaiah. Um, when God tells Isaiah to go and preach to the people in Isaiah chapter 6, he talks about the idea of a remnant. He talks about the idea of there being a small piece of what there is today is what's going to flourish and, be, and, re, and basically replant. Uh, throughout the prophets, you get that idea of there being just a, you know, Elijah, I only, I'm the only one. And God says, no, there's a few thousand more. But it's still a small group. That Paul, when he comments on the idea of the, the remnant, the, the small minority, he goes into that as well. He pulls in Elijah and other places. But at the same time, in, in, in the book of Exodus, we get the idea that um, God actually says, do not go with the majority to do evil, which, says, which the sages also argue then that you can go with the majority to do good, but the point is that you can't go with the majority to do evil. So just because the majority is doing it does not necessarily make it good all by itself. Um, in addition, along those lines, with this whole concept of, like, the narrow, you think about the, 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 the Midrash is full of examples of leaders making crummy decisions. And even the Sanhedrin gets mentioned in a couple of places, like, they did the wrong thing. Then, of course, you look in the, book of, in the, in the Torah, and you've got, like, the spies. Here come the ten spies, and all the people go, yeah, two guys say, no, 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 we can do this. So the idea of Yeshua saying that it's not, an, it's not easy to follow the right path, and if you're going to do it the right way, chances are you're going to be pretty lonely, is actually is very much biblically borne out. Furthermore, uh, if you remember from Mesut Yasharim, he makes a point, even though he's not taking it quite to this extreme, he makes a point of saying several times about, about halfway through the book, you know, the rest of this book may not be for you. Only certain people are willing and able to actually up their holiness any more beyond this point. So, basically, and you can stop reading now. And he already, you know, said this book is not for everybody to begin with. Right. So now he's already culling it out. Yeah, he's getting it in more narrow. So the idea is that um, there is a certain level. Well, to be the man that you're supposed to be is going to be more rare than it should be. There's not going to be as many guys like that. You're going to walk a lot alone. Uh, Peter actually gave me a book called The Lonely Man of Faith. That's the name of the book. So the idea is that um, there's limitations on how many people there are that are going to figure it out, and they're going to do it right. Along those lines, then, he then comes on, and this is coming back to your point about the dogs and the pigs, Yeshua then comes in and says, So be careful, because there are going to be people who look like they're walking with you, but they're not. Um, he says, "Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves." Now, this idea of leadership and animals of prey, carnivorous animals, is a is a theme that appears several times, um, a couple times in the prophets. And if someone can look up Ezekiel twenty-two uh, verses twenty-five through thirty. I got it. Twenty-five.
2: 25 to 30. They have made her a bed among the slain with all her multitude, her graves all around it, all of them uncircumcised, slain by the sword. Her terror of them was spread in the land of the living, and they bear their shame with those who go down to the pit. They are placed among the slain. Am I in the right way? Mm. It sounds pretty cool, though. God okay, I don't right? think
0: that's... It's Ezekiel 22, verses
2: 25 to 30? Oh, 22. I
0: was in 32. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs>
2: Was going to say, man, That's the judgment for what Johnny's going to read. There
5: is a conspiracy of her prophets in her midst, like a roaring lion that tears its prey. They have devoured souls. They have taken away Jerusalem's treasure and worth. They have increased her widows in her midst. Her priests robbed my Torah and desecrated my sanctities. They did not distinguish between holy and profane, and they did not make known the difference between contaminated and purified. They hid their eyes from my Shabbats, and I became profaned among them. Her officers within her were like wolves who tear prey, to shed blood, to destroy souls, for the sake of unjust gain. And her prophets smeared plaster for them, for they see worthless visions and they see divine falsehood for them. They say, Thus said Adonai Elohim when Adonai did not speak The people of the land have uh, perpetrated oppression and robbed loot. They have wronged the poor and the needy and oppressed the stranger without justice. From among them, I sought a man who could build a fence and stand in the breach before me, for the sake of the land, so that it might not be destroyed. But I did not find anyone.
0: So that whole idea—he lists, he lists the officers, he lists the princes, he lists the priests. Um, So Yeshua's point is basically kind of getting at just because somebody puts themselves out as a teacher or a prophet, that's
3: no—it's
0: not enough that they have that reputation or that personality. Interestingly enough, he specifically talks about false prophets. We know from Deuteronomy chapter 13 that there's a, there's a specific like list there. If the guy comes and says, let's go follow other gods, the answer is no. If the guy comes and says, God said this, and it doesn't happen, the answer is no. Basically, is God has given us a, a, a map, so to speak, to know the difference between a prophet who's true from him and one who's not. And so throughout this, Yeshua is basically warning them, look, you're going to be lonely on this path of righteousness. And if you think that some people are your friends and you, and you start trying to follow their lead, but their lives don't look like they should, that goes back to what we're talking about at the beginning of chapter 7. You can't judge unless you have that standard yourself. So if their lives aren't lining up, then you shouldn't be either. He says, you will know them by their fruit. Um, it's interesting in uh, uh, two ways of looking at fruit. Genesis Rabbah 33.1. And I got this from a website called syllabus.com so I hope the translation's good. But anyway, the point was that in Genesis thirty three 33.1, they talk about how like a ma- mountain can be sown, and it will bear fruit, and that's like the righteous, but the wicked are like a chasm. And uh, inherently, you can't sow into a chasm and it bear fruit. And they said that if, it did, if the deeds of the wicked would bear fruit, it would destroy the world. Um, so I get the impression from that that it's more the idea of like the the result of their deeds, rather than necessarily like good or bad deeds, but um, either way, basically, Yeshua is saying, if they do wicked things, their life's going to bear that out. It's going to be evidenced in what they do, and then in light of that, he says in verse twenty of chapter seven, "You will know them by their fruits."
2: And, and that's throughout the apostolic writings, you get the same
0: right. concept, which goes back again. I think to what he's been saying this whole time. Don't. I mean, it's like we were talking about last week, Matthew twenty-three. Don't do what they do. Do what they say, because what they do is not what they say.
1: Gregory, do you have a comment? No, it just that reminded me of James three, uh, you know, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing, and mm-hmm. then he talks about like a, a spring pouring forth fresh and salt water that doesn't work. You know, big tree. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Good point. Very good point. Um, in fact
0: it's interesting he talks about false prophets because I think he might have had one particular guy in mind Um, and I know he's not Jewish and the audience here is Jewish but Balaam really fits this image so well because in verse 21 Yeshua says not everyone who says to me Lord, Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven which is interesting because on multiple occasions using Hashem which is transliterated as Lord or translated as Mm -hmm. Lord um in the, in, the, in the circumlocution, uh, they, um, Balaam calls God by that name. He calls God by his actual name on a couple of occasions, and it's translated as Lord. And of course, in the, in the Greek here, you've just got the, uh, I guess, curious. Yeah. So it, whether it's uh, an allusion simply to, like, Rabbi, Lord, or if it's allusion to the substitute name for God, it's kind of hard to tell. But I do think that it kind of comes to mind because Balaam does it a couple of times. He calls God by his name, by his real name. And, and he says... Didn't I tell you I can only do yeah. what he said? But what does Balaam do? Balaam ends up being a huge betrayal. He's a, clearly a false prophet, and you know it by his fruit. You know it by the things he taught and by the way that he lives. Interestingly enough, in addition to this, talking at the Lord, Lord line, um, they also they said with the golden calf, this is the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of, Israel, uh, out of Egypt. Um, so... When Yeshua comes out and says, and it goes back again to Balaam, I think this is so good. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Your name cast out demons, your name performed many miracles. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me, you who practiced lawlessness. And that is the point of that whole concept. He doesn't, he's basically, he's got these people coming to him going, We did all these big things in your name. And Balaam could say the same thing. Balaam is one of the biggest prophecies of the Messiah. If there was ever somebody like, connected with God in a way that was special, it would have been Balaam. But, but Bala- Balaam is the paragon of false prophets. He's the paragon of the wicked man. Mm. And, and ultimately, he's, he, he receives his just desserts. And notice that Yeshua does not say, I never knew you, you didn't pray the right prayer. I never knew you, you didn't walk down the aisle. I never knew you, you didn't you know, believe in me to do X. It says i never knew you depart from me you who practice lawlessness in other words regardless of what you say regardless of all the little frilly things that you do what you claim you believe totally irrelevant if your life doesn't back it up it doesn't matter at all and so what is it it's, so it's amazing to me that well, obviously we talk about grace and works and how you get into heaven and all that kind of jazz or get to the world to come whatever um and we understand that yeshua's place and the role of faith and believing in him to take our place and and provide for us to get in through his righteousness, at the same time, it's always borne out by our righteousness. And if it's not borne out by our righteousness, then that completely obliterates your faith. You you can't have faith and not be righteous. It doesn't work.
1: Yes, sir? Just to clarify, I think Balaam wasn't necessarily a false prophet, just a wicked prophet. Well, true, that's true. Because pretty much everything he said and And, inhabited our sitters. And and he did hear directly from Hashem. Right, you're right. But just a
0: wicked one. Right, yes, Uh, good point. But yes, just seeing him as the uh, example of kind of what she was saying here, somebody who looks good, but is dangerous. Um, Because interestingly enough, even though he does, because that's actually in Deuteronomy 13, he says even if they say, this is going to happen, and it happens, God's just trying to test you. What are, they, what are they actually saying in their instruction? What are they teaching? What are they living? Mm. That's what you're watching for.
2: Yes, sir. Uh, Greg Upham says that in uh, Babli Moed Katan, I never knew you is a traditional expression used when a rabbi severs a relationship with a disciple as a form of temporary discipline. Ooh, cool. Mm. I like
1: that. That's wow. True. That's really interesting.
0: Very nice. Um, so then Yeshua wraps up by basically saying, where do you want... Um, who, do you, who should you be listening to, and how are you going to be able to achieve this? And he actually, um, he says that everyone who hears these words of mine and acts on them may be compared to a wise man. What's interesting about this is if you read this passage, it almost comes off a little arrogant. All of a sudden, Yeshua's going, um, got, here's what you got to do to be righteous, here's what it looks like, so if you listen to my words, check, you're doing that, and it's like, are we allowed to say that about our own comments? But actually, this is also quite common. Um, we see in a couple places uh, uh, Rabbi Nachman kind of has that. Uh, there's that element of I don't know if it's Nachman or Balshinto, um, but in the whole idea of the Hasidic movement, there is this um, self-perpetuating argument of saying that this is good. This is coming from God. This is like inspired. This is like legitimate stuff. It's not. It, it, it's sort of trumpet, sounding your own trumpet in a way. But it's because you like God does speak to people. And if God spoke to you, it's okay to say that. Especially and if it's consistent with what God already said. said. Right. So that's the same thing that, we, uh, regardless of whether not you agree with Hasidism, my only point is that that's a way, a way of speaking that's not unusual to Judaism. You see, the same thing with the Ramban in his letter to his son. He actually says, hey, if you read this one every day, you're going to be in good shape. I mean, that's a pretty bold promise. Yeah. You know, I'm handwriting this little note to you, and if you read this every day, it's going to go well with you. It's like, whoa. That's pretty cool. So Yeshua's kind of doing the same thing here. It's not an issue of arrogance. It's rather an issue of very strong self-confidence. Of all people, Yeshua knows that what he's saying is true. Who's you Go
2: ahead. Just real quick, going back to that last verse in uh, 23 there, uh, I never knew you depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Um, I've always seen that last paragraph, 21 through 23, as, as a description of the folks that I know in the visible representation of the church. That is what they mm-hmm. do. Mm. They you know they they call him Lord and they prophesy, they cast out demons. I mean, these 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 are the people. Um but the one thing that we would look at them and say that they are decidedly missing is the balance that comes from keeping the Torah. So they are anomia, they are no law mm.
0: um,
2: that's scary it was scary, and you know the man of lawlessness that he talks about that right. Paul talks about in Thessalonians but of all the examples you gave uh, I never knew you depart from me you who didn't pray enough or whatever <laughs> all these examples you gave the one that I would have expected prior to keeping the Torah is I never knew you, depart from me, you who have no faith. Right. Mm. that I mean, to me, O ye of little faith, fill in the blank. Right. right? Um, I put your lack of faith disturbing. Theory. Yeah. <laughs> but here, it is absolutely consistent with the two chapters prior to it. This is what the Torah says, but you're
0: not doing it. Right. And that doesn't line up. Interestingly enough, along those lines, talking to people who look one way and act another. Um, in, the, in the Chumash on Leviticus chapter 11, they quote from Kali Ya'kar who talks about the fact that the pig is a classic example of someone who's a, basically a hypocrite uh, because he has his hooves out as though to say oh come on, I'm really kosher you should yeah. believe me because he There's has the cloven hooves the but inside. it's on the inside that's wrong yeah, that's uh, which is a very interesting perspective cool. another commentary, um, I believe it was from the Chumash unfortunately I don't have it off the top of my head where it was now um, kind of compares Esau to the pig. Because Esau, according to tradition, would come to Isaac and say, so if I have to tie this much, right. or what do I do about this one? And Isaac assumed that this guy must be like, really serious about his faith because he's asking all these deep questions. Um, but then uh, in, one, in one teaching on that whole concept, they basically say that like, it, was all, it was all in his head. He was simply intellectually interested in the Torah, but he doesn't actually practice it right. with his life. And so that was the, 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 um, the conclusion. I think it was Rabbi Lappin that talked about this that when, um, according to tradition, Esau is beheaded at the, uh, at the cave of Machpelah, and his head rolls into the cave because only his head was worthy of being buried with the patriarchs.
2: Oh, gee. That's good.
0: Yeah, uh, I think I
1: have Brock and then Greg. Well, was you on, I was going to do something slightly different. So if you're on the same topic. Oh, just uh, the, what we're coming here with the. I was just thinking, you know. Because it does, it does come across the first reading as a little arrogant, until like, I don't know, it's, it seems to indicate when he's referencing like these words, we've just gone through, I think about the entire class that we've done here, and if there's one thing that I've kind of gotten out of this, it's like, Yeshua is so consistent with Torah, Tanakh, and pretty much like all kinds of great Jewish writings, right? And so it's like, these wor- when he's saying these words, he's basically just talking about Torah, you know? So then it's like, it's not arrogant at all to say like, look pretty much if you just do whatever I say, which is what I'm saying is the Torah, like then you're good to go. And okay. then in, in that case, I think that's pretty neat. And I just, at the end there where it talks about, he juxtaposes the, the Yeshua's teachings as one who has authority versus the not as their scribes. I just thought like, it's interesting because feel like a lot of times when people stray a little bit too far from Torah and they start fishing for a lot of insight and stuff, mm. that's where there isn't a whole lot of authority backing that because then they can't, they, it, would, it wouldn't withstand questioning. You know, mm. it, it ends up, you know, someone might just respond, they end up responding with like, well, that's, that's just what, what I think, or something like that, mm. you know, and that has no foundation in Torah, so.
0: Yeah, it's also interesting in that, that idea that the you contrast, the contrast to share with the scribes, because Judaism definitely had both flavors in their midst. One, of course, was the constantly quoting somebody else, person who really doesn't seem to have anything themselves to say, but they are very good at remembering what everybody else has said before them. But then there are other examples, like Ramban and others, who have just a lot of their own uh, teachings, commentary, ethics, whatever. So the, the idea is that Yeshua definitely lines up more with the more independent teachers, who were delivering a a very straightforward message um, on their own volition, of their own accord, this is what I think, this is what I believe God is telling me, versus necessarily someone who's just quoting everybody else. But at the same time, Yeshua fits in the fabric of that, just like those guys will. Ramban has this one little letter that he writes himself, he doesn't really quote anybody for that, and yet the commentary on him quotes like a thousand people, because everything he's getting at is straight from what else is being taught. Was yeah, was being taught. It was true. So Yeshua fits in the same category, I think, there, where he's he's speaking with authority. These are his words, but at the same time, they're his words that fit into the, the stream. Um, are you in the same topic? Or are we going to go? Well, was I, I want to get to over here for the same thing. Okay. Something along those lines.
3: Well, one thing that they're just in the same line as you know, they were amazed at the way he taught because he said things like with authority. Just like the one little thing he said about like and he said it so subtly, but like about how he knows how birds think. <laughs> like, that still sticks out to me. Like, who said it? Like, I would not come out and say that. Like, and then that's just like a small example of, of what he's been doing this whole, you know, right. three chapters.
4: Right. Yes. Yes, sir. Well, Yeshua said in John chapter 15 that the only thing he ever spoke was what the Father spoke. So, right. You know, any of this is solid in and of itself. He doesn't have to have. He doesn't have to quote somebody else.
0: Right. He is—he is the authority. Agreed, and I think that's exactly what Deuteronomy says uh, in talking about the prophet like in Moses. He's going to say exactly what God tells him to say. That's what Yeshua does. So he—he he speaks with authority. He has it. And you'll—you'll be, you'll be held accountable. So it's right. not—so it's not arrogance. It's actually humility that he's speaking what he was told to speak. Right. That's a good point. A very good point. Um, along those lines, Yeshua uses this little parable, and we're going to kind of wrap up with this one. He uses a little parable about the man who builds his house in the sand and man who builds his house in a rock, um, which ties in, again, um, the Psalms. Psalm 127.1 says, Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. So you get this idea that like this, this interplay between building and doing what God says. So if God's not involved in this building, it's not going to work and if God is involved then it will succeed and Perke Avot get the same thing this is Perke Avot chapter 4 um, uh, uh, verse 14 we're going to quote from uh, possibly Adam Sandler's great ancestor <laughs> Rabbi Yochanan the Sandler said every assembly that is dedicated to the sake of heaven will have an enduring effect But one that is not for the sake of heaven will not have an enduring effect you kind of get the same thing here if you follow Yeshua's words, your life's going to have that stability that, that underneath it, um, that God-inspired uh, strength that comes from him that's going to make it last. But then if it's not, then it's just going to wash away and that'll be that. Any other final comments here?
2: I did look up Hillel and I remembered something about him and Yeshua. But again, depending on when you think Yeshua was born, negative two negative 3 whatever it is um, Hillel died in 10 which mm-hmm. means that probably right around the time he was Bart Mitzvah or was sitting in the temple asking the questions
5: right, right. is, ask, is ask. when Hillel left ask Greg Altham I think he wrote a biography of Hillel, mm-hmm. and you get that recently. and you see
0: that Yeshua as he's stepping into as we talked about in our very first class he's stepping into the context of the Zukot, which right, are just right. coming to an end yeah and he is, while he is the authority and he speaks from himself, and he speaks from Hashem. Really, um, he nonetheless is stepping into that running stream of Judaism. He's stepping into the Tanakh and the teachings of the Zohar and those who came before him, as well as laying the groundwork for those who come afterwards. So, I, like I said, I hope that throughout this, you you guys have gotten a good chance to really delve in deeply with me to look at not only how Yeshua. Um, has really inspiring things to say, I and mean, I have to tell you, the last few weeks is look at myself I'm going, "Ooh, I got to work on that too. That's not good. Oh my goodness!" I've read this, I don't know how many times, but uh, at the same time, you also get the idea that um, y- Yeshua and Judaism are not only compatible, but they're they're like they're interwoven. I mean, in, in Judaism's concept, the Messiah and Israel are almost one and the same. They're like they they can almost be interchanged for one another in terms of prophecy and that kind of thing. And I almost get the same sense here that Yeshua fits so well into the culture, the language, the the teachings of Judaism. Um, And so, and he he, he sits in it so well that it's like, you get to the point, you're reading Talmud, you're going, so did they get this from him? Or are they both going from the same source?
2: If he's the quintessential Jew, and he's the Messiah, and he's God, we don't need to make him fit, and we don't need to apologize for him. We need to just get the arguments together to make people recognize over 10,000 orthodox believing obedient Jews recognize this man, including a lot of
0: priests was the Messiah. And interestingly enough um, they, they eventually ended up with a decent relationship with the Pushim, the Pharisees, because of course we have James the Just, um, the Pharisees actually kind of argued on his behalf after he was killed by the Sadducees. Mm-hmm. And then you also have, throughout history, you've got these little, little lights here and there. This, this rabbi here who, who seems to say something that sounds very similar to what you've heard before. Right. And then as you get deeper in, you've got a couple of them here and there that are very openly and explicitly followers of Yeshua. Right. So it, as opposed to being, uh, rather than being in opposition to Judaism or, or having um, unable to fit in, Yeshua actually makes more sense in the, in the context of Jewish teaching and, and, of, and the whole Tanakh.
2: Well done, sir. Well done, indeed. Thank <laughs> you. Um, Peter wanted me to uh, remind you guys that today is Kai kind of little. So I said, well, what is that? And... Uh, he says, the 18th of the month of Elul is the birthday of the two great luminaries. The Balshem Tov, born in 1698, and uh, who was the founder of the Hasidic movement, and the altar Rebbe, Shnur Zalman of Le'adi, born in 1745, founder of the trend within Hasidicism, known as Chabad. Um, so they say the Rebbe... Uh, Rayatz relates that there are two versions of a traditional Hasidic aphorism. Kai Alul breathes vitality into rule," and Kai Alul breathes vitality into the service of I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. The two versions of this aphorism parallel the two dimensions of Kai Alul. The first version reflects the contribution of the Baal Shem Tov, and the second version, the, the contribution of the Altar With the advent of the month of Alul, our divine service as a whole is intensified. I am my beloveds represents one dimension of this intensification. So the way they put it here is, uh, by revealing the formerly hidden teachings of Hasidism, Hasidism I guess is the best way to say it, the Baal Shem Tov introduced new vitality into every aspect of Jewish life. With the teachings of Habad, Hasidism, the Altarebi gave expression to a particular thrust of divine service. And anyway, the, the, the bottom line was that life Became better with the Baal Shem Tov as he taught people that they needed to serve God. And then living by faith in Emunah was taught by the altar Rebbe as he showed everybody how to serve God. Mm. Through what's Habad stand for? So
5: binah. Top three levels of the Sephiroth. Pretty
1: cool. The cool way that that kind of relates to to Yeshua is that. I, the stories that you read of the Baal Shem Tov, it's not breathing vitality into like the smartest people around. He was constantly hanging out with common people, Absolutely. and in, mm-hmm. even Gentiles in several cases. Just like Yeshua. In some of his stories, just like Yeshua, which is so cool because it's like starting from the ground up instead of like the top down. Right. And and I mean, you, a, think you have fishermen. You know? Right. Right. The guys, you weren't
2: in these schools and so forth. So. Yeah. There's they were really just up. in a different school. Yeah. Yeah. If, if, yeah. I, if I may, on that, yeah, yeah, there's a different. Uh, Pete picture. says we should be drinking liquor. I, you know, I, I know.
1: I know. Who said we should be drinking? Pete.
2: It's, a, tonight? it's definitely a liquor opportunity. Ah, yeah. I said you coming over because now I'm, I'm busy. Okay.
1: Yeah, there. Um, another you liquor. Another you have their relationship I know, to the um, the song of songs quote is yeah. the, 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 another relation to that and Elul is that, um, num- number one, the acronym is, spells out Elul, the, um, the acronym of that particular phrase, I am a beloved that my beloved is mine. But then uh, there's an interesting quote here that, uh, that later on that verse ends with, um, he who pastures among the Shoshanim, which is apparently a 13-petaled flower, which rose. is typically translated as rose, But the um, Shnir Zalman Zalman had a Hasidic discourse for this particular time period and said that that is a representation of the 13 attributes of mercy, which are intensified and easily attainable during the month of the the as we prepare for the the days of awe, and and all of the big high holy days. So I thought that was kind of a, it was an interesting point because he relates they' this particular time in the year as being a time for two different things. There's a discussion in the Talmud that goes back and forth, whether or not like the keeping of a mitzvah or the holiness that comes from keeping a mitzvah is better kind of. And so anyway, they go back and forth, but um, the whole idea is like this time it's not only that our sins are forgiven, meaning the opportunities that we missed to do a mitzvah or when we did something that was bad. It's not only that those are forgiven, but there's also this lack of holiness that we've missed out on when we've sinned, that is also filled by the thirteen attributes of mercy. So this oh, is cool. a very, yeah. very cool time. So you get a double dose. Yeah.
2: Very cool. Very cool. Well, I think we should uh, transfer them that tomorrow and have a glass of wine tonight. <laughs> I like that. I
5: idea. think you did a great job. I really,
2: really enjoyed this. It was was spectacular. I can't wait to finish all my notes and and (laughs) get the references you've already given me and the ones for tonight, you know, and get it all out there. I'm going to post it all for everybody because it's just, for those folks who are are listening online, you know, I've gotten great, great feedback. Although they said that the uh,
0: microphone was too low. But I turned it up tonight, so we'll be good. Yeah, it was, a, it was a good study. It was, it was good. I enjoyed teaching it. good. Yeah, so. Very, very good. I thank you, I our God, that you have established our portion with those who dwell in the study hall, and you have not established our portion with idlers. For we arise early, and they arise early. We arise early for words of Torah, and they arise early for idle words. We toil, and they toil. We toil and receive reward, and they toil and do not receive reward. We run, and they run. We run to the life of the world to come, and they run to the pit of destruction. As is written... And you, O God, you will lower them into the well of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit shall not live out half their days. But as for me, I will trust in you. Amen. Amen. Yeah. This is good Thank, you, God. On it. Thank, Thank you. you very much.
2: Can I see it? See you too. I must depart. Thank you. You Thank must you. depart. depart.